Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine and joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. I have another dog story. This is quite good. I suppose this is good news, really, is the news that four COVID-19 sniffer dogs have begun work at Helsinki Airport. In a, it's a scheme where they're basically aiming to get the dogs to sniff out coronavirus. Uh, well, definitely. I think if you're a Glaswegian, why would you ever venture east? So I, you know, common with many Glaswegians, I thought, oh, it's a bit small, this place, isn't it? I wanted time to get back home to the motherland. So after I speak to you today from my um, lovely flat in, the, in, in Glasgow, and I'm so pleased to be here. I think Glasgow is just such a wonderful city and I'm so pleased that it will be hosting the world's leaders next year because I think it's going to be such a good opportunity for this city to show its wares. Okay, so now it's time for the rant of the week. Yeah, it's about pish. Okay, so first up we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I have quite a few ideas for Bad Week this week. It's kind of been a week of unrelenting misery as oh, far as I'm week. concerned. It has, it's, been, it's been a very dismal week. We've um, hit I the wall. <laughs> I've really hit the wall. I'm struggling now. Um, yeah. So I don't have much for Good Week, I'm afraid. Oh, well, I can bring some light into that with pandemic puppies. Pandemic so, puppies? Well, yeah. puppies are good news, yes. So, so this is a good week for basically dog breeders. Um, Kennel Club have talked about 187% increase in the number of people that are asking about buying a puppy. Oof. I never know where they get that kind of figure from, 187%. Yeah. Um, I always thought 100% was as high as you could go, but there we go. Um, so puppy breeders are having a boom time. Mm-hmm. Um, people are discovering that having spent so much time in lockdown on their own, they need a companion and they're willing mm-hmm. to pay for it. Well, I can understand so, that, yeah. Well, you've done it. I got but, a lockdown dog, yeah. We yeah, pop up. A pandemic pup. Uh-huh. Um, so prices have gone for a pedigree puppy from fifteen hundred pounds up to two and a half thousand pounds. And you, um, you have to, you do have to wonder if that also if that's going to lead to a massive spike in puppy farming. Well, they're saying that because having then gone off and asked people that are buying puppies, have you really thought about what will happen should life get back to a bit of normality and you go back to work? Mm. And about half of them haven't even considered how they would fit the puppy into their life. Yeah, I mean, shelters are presumably watching this with a degree of trepidation because it's, you know, it would just be six months before those dogs, well, before those puppies are giant and also probably yeah. still acting quite a lot like puppies and those people have to go back to work, yeah. Or if they do oh, have to go back to work. But. Yeah. Also, if we do actually get to spend Christmas together, not you and me, but families. We, uh, we've never <laughs> spent Christmas together, have we? I'm not going, I'm not planning Christmas okay. with you, Liam. But, um, I mean, in my family alone, what, my uh, nephews just bought a puppy and one of my nieces has bought a puppy. Yeah. So we're going to have a pack of pandemic puppies. <laughs> oh, that's good work. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, good yeah. work. No, it is, it is quite strange. You do see a lot more puppies around. Um, yeah. And... You know, like I was waiting to get my dog vaccinated and thought I just really can't risk going anywhere because there's going to be so many dogs out that might not be vaccinated. You've really got no chance at all. Imagine getting something off your dog, you know, during a pandemic. No, exactly. That'd be embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I have another dog story. This is quite good. Oh, go I on. suppose this is good news, really, is the news that four COVID-19 sniffer dogs have begun work at Helsinki Airport. 
in yeah. a, it's a scheme where they're basically aiming to get the dogs to sniff out coronavirus. And apparently it's actually working quite well. One of the researchers said it's very promising. Um, if it works, it could prove a good screening method in other places. It's much faster, obviously, and you get to talk to a dog rather than a doctor, which is probably everyone's ideal future for the medical system. It's quite novel as well, isn't it? Having something sniff out flu. Well, yeah, I and mean, apparently they don't really understand how they do it. I think what they do is they get you to wipe, they, they get you to like wipe yourself with a cloth, then they put the cloth uh-huh. somewhere and see how the dog reacts. But they don't right. really, you know, it's the same as previous tests, I think, where they found dogs can sniff out all sorts of medical problems. I don't yeah. think they really understand what the dog's actually up to. But then I don't know if anyone ever really understands what a dog's up to. Yeah, it's whether you uh, trust your dog when it's sniffing away at you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't say I've trained the puppy into doing anything like that. He's, he doesn't really seem to notice anything at all. I mean, he doesn't, when I talk, he isn't even sure it's me talking. Oh, Liam, um, it's such a bright puppy. He's not, um, I wouldn't say he's particularly bright. I wouldn't, I mean, I, I, he doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's okay. Um, mm. I haven't introduced him to it yet. So what about bad week? Because it has been pre- yeah. pretty dismal. I mean, I, I speaking to lots of people, I think this last week where restrictions started to come back in for lots of people, I just feel we've all hit a bit of a wall. Yeah, I think I think it's that. And also it's the knowledge that we are now at the time of year where nights are going to get shorter and shorter. So like you can handle the idea that you can only meet people outside or, it's, or at least it's, you know, pretty well established it's safer to meet people outside. But what are you going to do in mid-December? You know, oh, know. like what are you going to? How are you going to meet people in a freezing park? Remember how we all laughed when uh, the first minister said she wouldn't be cancelling Christmas? <laughs> yeah, seems so long ago. <laughs> yeah, so I mean that is that's really my bad week actually. They're all kind of tied together with their different strands of the of, of the latest on coronavirus, and that's yeah. that follows the news that there were seven hundred new positive tests on Saturday, which is obviously a pretty big spike. I suppose the thing to keep in mind throughout this is that there weren't really any tests getting done previously, so we don't really know the extent of the problem. You sound a bit like Trump when you say that. Yeah, well, he's my yeah. <laughs> That's probably a new one actually. <laughs> but then the first ministers also said that we're just testing more. Yeah. Um, but the students. What the about students, the students, yeah, Liam? Exactly. Well, yeah, we've so there's also the news that um, the police broke up more than 300 house parties um, at the weekend, which is fairly incredible if you think yeah. about about the reality of what we're dealing with here. Who's Although having it's worth, these parties? Well, I don't. They didn't really release a lot of information, but it did state that only one in ten were students. So these aren't yeah. students; these are people. Well, everyone else basically is just partying. Um, Middle-aged people. Yes, and yet students are bearing the brunt of it, which I think is what you were going on to there, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I thought what was interesting was this week seeing um, Murano Student Village in the news because that's mm-hmm. where my own son stayed five years that, ago. That's huge, isn't it? That's a massive Huge, one. yeah. I think a, a couple of thousand mm. kids, I think, are there. Um, and I have to say, my reflections on Murano Village were they weren't pretty they weren't very sanitary then and that was before a pandemic um but these poor kids all go trips off to university having been told that that's what they should do having already suffered through the whole exam debacle Mm. and then they get to university they all catch the virus and they all now have to isolate it's pretty awful and yeah. in Glasgow, I think there's quite a number of students gone on rent strike, which I think is very sensible. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you assume that's the main reason that they were they were told to go onto campus, isn't it? That they needed funding for from yeah. their rent. I mean, it's it's an entirely 
It's a problem you could easily have seen coming, surely. That you're, yeah. You've already got Freshers flu anyway. You know, it's pretty well established <laughs> that when loads of students turn up in a in a situation like that, they do generally mix, and then you have a spike in sort of various illnesses. But that's when you don't have a kind of deadly pandemic on the rise. Yeah, I mean, I do feel they were they went off to university, if you like, under false um, promises yeah. really and they all arrived there and some somebody had said to me that the parents should have just said to them well you can't go to university can you imagine saying to a 17 year old or an 18 year old sorry you're not getting to go for freshers week mm-hmm. I mean they're not going to listen to a parent are they no and it's not been really a great week for government guidance in that no. sense either because there was a huge amount of confusion over actually what they were expected to do and you know there's all there's consequences for anyone who breaks lockdown or breaks breaks guidance but the idea that universities were suggesting that the students might be thrown out entirely seems like a much bigger penalty than someone who's maybe got a bit of money paying a fine yeah i mean i think the biggest issue you you touched on it there that government um seem to have been on the back foot with this and i don't really understand why we we saw what happened in care homes we know that in big institutions where people mix inside is a is an issue for the the, the virus mm-hmm. so i don't understand why we didn't do things like either stagger students going back um make sure they were tested mm-hmm. uh, create bubbles i mean there must have been ways around this but i mean i think there's also that over that that kind of underlying message that young people don't get ill well you know we haven't seen that happen yet and you Mm -hmm. hope that that doesn't happen um well you know there's there's evidence that it can cause long-term problems even if it doesn't you know it isn't fatal but there's also the mental health aspect if you know that when when there's an outbreak in halls that all these young people some of whom have never been away from home before some of whom are really really young are Mm going to be trapped inside you have to wonder what impact that's going to have on their mental health and that is important well it's funny because some people were saying oh you know actually i made the best friends ever those first few weeks at university when you're all kind of pushed in together into a hall of residence but actually what if you don't get on well yeah and you, and people do make friends but they don't always make friends with their flatmates sometimes no. they make friends with someone that they meet through a society or in their class you yeah. know that's just as common and that's not going to happen at the moment is it I wonder what the long-term political ramifications will be. I mean, this is a group of kids that have have gone through that whole exam issue and and then also end up at university in this horrible situation where they're all locked in and not allowed to leave and not yeah, getting lessons. It depends who they blame for it, really, doesn't it? Whether they, they just say, well, this is coronavirus, there was very little that can be done, whether they say it's the Scottish government hasn't handled it very well or whether they blame their institution themselves because those well, institutions, parents. some of the messaging that's been sent out is atrocious. So I'm sure oh, they'll blame their parents regardless. I mean, yeah, it's always the parents. That's everyone's right, isn't it? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but you're right. It, it, the, I mean, there was that mixed message from the First Minister about whether or not they could go to pubs if that was a long-lasting ban. In fact, she then t- came back and said it was just for that... I think last weekend, hmm. um, but the universities themselves have given out mixed messages too. Well, yeah, and then the clarification from the Scottish government came out at six pm on a Sunday. Yeah, you know, saying we we were we're still asking students to stay away from pubs for the rest of the weekend. You think that's not really much use now? Yeah, I mean, I live opposite Pollock Hall, so that's a huge student residence, and it was crawling with police. Hmm. 
And apparently they were informants telling on them. I have asked the husband whether it was him. <laughs> Is that something that you'd suspect? <laughs> he says not. <laughs> he says not, okay. He says well. not, we'll see. Well, it's, it's a huge part of their life, though, isn't it? I think that's the thing that strikes me, is that the younger you are, the longer this has gone on for you, basically. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're stuck in a care home, that's pretty much the worst situation I can imagine. But beyond that, for young people, it's it's really, really difficult. And you, you think about what sort of... The, the sort of surrounding context to this is there's likely to be a huge crash, or, or the, the economy is likely to be very sluggish for a long time. Which means that as they get out of university, it might be quite hard for them to find opportunities. Yeah. It, just, it feels like a really, really difficult time for young people. They should get a puppy. They should get a wee pup. Yeah, get a Rudy. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. Uh, seriously, it's a hellish time. And I, I'm sure looking back for them, it won't be a look, you know, they won't look back saying, oh, wasn't that fun? All getting locked up together and not having the chance to enjoy Fresh's week. And, you know, we, we all look back and the memories of the first few weeks at university were probably pretty amazing for most of us yeah i just i wonder how angry they'll be if they if they graduate they've had pretty much you know it looks like this could go on for a really long time it could be that a lot of their university life is restricted and yeah who they'll blame for that whether the opposition can you know the the opposition parties can capitalize on that i don't think they've really done that so far in scotland it doesn't really look like they've, they've won any political capital from it but maybe they could yeah, I suppose it's interesting. I mean, it's like it is like the exam situation that everybody thought, you know, this is oh gosh, this will really affect um, the SNP government. We had the vote of confidence or no confidence in the deputy first minister, who's the education secretary, and really that seems like a long time ago now. They come out of it, mm-hmm. um, and it, it'll be interesting to see if this is the same. Because although you, you know, who do you blame for this? Um, I think the messaging is something that definitely could be looked at and said well the government got that wrong the universities have got that wrong mm-hmm. but, it does i mean it just you wonder how, how hopeful they feel um about the future in that sense you know in yeah. terms of the jobs market even when coronavirus is over and you know the, the the interview in this in this podcast is with chris stark from the committee on climate change that's another aspect of this is the the, the future of young people could be dominated by environmental degradation you know it's possible that we're going to see a catastrophic collapse in the world's ecosystems Oh, God, I, I actually do really need a puppy to stroke. Yeah, no, it's sad. Well, actually, the, the good news is that Chris Stark himself isn't um, as pessimistic as me. Um, right. I mean, I sometimes think in these interviews, it depends what your starting position is, but he does see cause for optimism. You know, as part of what we talked about, was he, he thinks that humanity will adapt regardless of what comes. Um, and that just, it, the cost of that could be greater and greater as time goes on. But the other option, obviously, is that we use the recovery from um, from lockdown to try and stimulate some of the key industries that we need to, to you know to give a future to those young people. Um, so I think we I think we're going to have a listen to that now. You can also hear um, about why he would probably choose not to take Donald Trump out to the Barrowlands. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I'm joined by Chris Stark. Chris is the Chief Executive of the Committee on Climate Change. That's a statutory body which was set up to basically tell the UK government what it's doing well and what it's doing badly. The devolved governments as well, so essentially to compliment them when they deserve it and give them a kick when they deserve it as well. Is that fair to say, Chris? Is that an accurate description? Yeah, that's a, that's quite a good way of thinking about it. I think we are, we are for most of the time, advisors to government. And then for one day of the year, we are the... Um, the advisor to Parliament, so the more regulatory role. Mm. We sort of combine those those two roles together. Mm-hmm. And you've you've been in the role since 2018. Um, there's a, there's a few bits I'd like to ask you about, but I think first of all, maybe we should just um, 
cut to the, the chase, the thing that's bothering me. Over the last you know sort of year, we've seen a series of fairly apocalyptic images on our screens on TV. You know, you can see the the Arctic is on fire at points. The Amazon was a fire. So what happened in Australia? Um, there's been an increase in flooding and drought and extreme weather events all over the world. So how scared should we be? Well, I don't know if we should be scared, but you should be alarmed. I mean, the important thing is that climate change is a huge issue. It's always, I'm afraid, being discussed as something for the future. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of events that we're seeing now happening more and more uh, around the world and here in in Scotland and the UK is that this is climate change. So it's with us now. Mm. Um, It's not going away. But the really important thing uh, is that you know we can do something about it. You know, this mm. is this is um, the, some of the, some of some future change. I'm afraid is inevitable. But the really really difficult stuff, the really harsh stuff that comes with lots and lots of global warming, we can avoid if globally we make a decision to cut our uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. And the strategies to do that are something that we understand in you know, a great amount of detail. So I, I I think we should be alarmed, but I think we should feel confident that we can act to head off the worst of it. So that's there's some hope there, I suppose. That's after one degree of warming that we've, we've seen so far. So I, I suppose from your point of view, the main thing is to see to see cuts and then also to start adapting as well. Yeah, there's a kind of, a kind of good way to remember where we are today, at least, is, is the kind of framing of one, two, three, and four. So as you say, we've had about one degree of warming uh, since the Industrial Revolution, most of that has come uh, recently in, in in the last fifty years. Yeah, yeah. And that is that is very strongly tied to the use of fossil fuels, also the way in which we've been declining um, some of the forest forested bits of the you know cutting that down to graze cattle. So you know mm. there's a kind of double effect there. That's that's how, that's up to one degree of warming. The Paris Agreement, which was signed five years ago, talks about capping warming further warming to two degrees above pre-industry levels that's the two Mm. Uh, we are probably on course for something more like three at the moment if you add up all of the national pledges that have been you get to just over three degrees of warming that's the three Mm. but it's it is it is reasonable i think to plan for four if we don't make further changes and four degrees of warming may not sound a lot but that is catastrophic you know we have not seen warming at that kind of scale Mm. Um, uh, and happened with that, you know, that the quickness with which that warning is co- warming is, is is coming is not something we've had to cope with. So the kind of change that will that will cause to the planet and the and the things living on it is difficult to gauge. The risks that go with it are huge. So we mm. want to avoid that. I think the Paris Agreement is the thing we need to deliver. And of course, that's what the big climate conference in Glasgow is going to be all about next year: is how we how we deliver on the pledge that was made in Paris. Mm. I, mean, I suppose there's, there is also quite a lot of uncertainty here, isn't there? Because there's there's been reports that suggest that even two degrees could lead to a sort of hothouse Earth situation. Yeah, I mean, every single bit of warming is to be avoided if if we can if we can. So there is no there is no safe level of warming. I mean, you see at one degree the impacts that we are seeing around the world. We're seeing much more extreme weather, much more frequently much more likely that we'll see the kind of heat waves that we've seen in in the UK and in Scotland, much more likely that we see the kind of fires that in, in, in arid and dry places around the world that we're now seeing right as we speak today in California, for example. So, you know, we want to avoid warming um, if we possibly can. We probably have already baked in a further 
up to half a degree of warming. So, you know, you, mm. one of the, for those of you who are familiar with the Paris Agreement will know that there are two temperatures in the in the in the goal that was signed in Paris to keep warming to about 1.5 degrees centigrade or two degrees centigrade. So it's going to best efforts for one and a half, but mm. two as a sort of backstop. Um, well, we are not far away now from that one and a half um, threshold. If you look forward over a few years, it will be difficult to avoid a further half a degree of warming unless we very, very rapidly change the emissions um, that we are causing globally. So, you know, that is a huge global effort that would be needed to deliver the one and a half degree threshold. But it's totally worth trying to make that that change because we know that there is a difference between one and a half and two degrees, even never mind three and four. So. I think it's really worth having those numbers in your head because I think that's what we're going to be talking about over the next twelve years, uh, twelve months rather, as the yeah. run up in the run up to to Glasgow and the COP. And, and of course, the story is how you, how you deliver that kind of reversal, and what industrial changes are necessary, what social changes are necessary, and all of this is something we understand more and more about, and I think should be less and less afraid of. The change to a, a zero carbon economy is something we can definitely make, and we can probably do it quite quickly. Is that, I mean, is that what gives you cause for optimism is, you know, the, the, there are huge technological changes coming and, uh, you know, the, the cost of things like renewable energy are, is dropping rapidly. Is that where your hope comes from? It really does, yeah. I mean, I, if, if we had some charts in front of us, I would show you the um, historical <laughs> picture on, on emissions and it would be heading in entirely the wrong direction. So, you know, can I imagine the line going upwards over time as we as more and more parts of the world discover fossil fuels and use them more and more? But the really interesting thing that is happening right now is that the cost of the alternatives to fossil fuels are plummeting. And that is not a process that will reverse. So I expect it to continue. Mm. And um, it gives me huge optimism for the future. So in particular, the costs of generating electricity without using those fossil fuels that cause global warming and climate change has already dropped to the level where it uh, competes with fossil fuels and in many cases outcompetes fossil fuels on a straightforward cost basis. So you can mm. imagine a world where we are generating more and more electricity without having to burn fossil fuels and then we can electrify the economy more and more. So using that electricity for transport, for example, for the ways in which we heat our home. Those kind of steps are the kind of steps that we in Scotland will have to take. They are the same steps that every economy around the world will take too and as the price continues to plummet as the price of batteries continues to plummet for example you know these these are the kind of technologies that will lead us away from fossil fuels and therefore mean we can reverse the trajectory of that emissions chart and it, that's that, that can be done so i mean i think it's it is inevitable that we will do it because eventually standard economics says that's the right the right approach mm. You came into this job with a background in economics, didn't you? You were, you were energy policy previously as well. Yeah, I've worked on economic policy at UK level um, and also a little in the Scottish government. So um, I certainly wouldn't call myself an economist, but I've been around the, the policy, the economic policy space for a while. And that's what led me to to work on these issues, actually. I came up mm. from, from uh, London in 2008 joined the Scottish government where I worked in something called the strategy unit for a while. Mm -hmm. And from that, I went to uh, the area I was most interested in when it came to economic policy, which is energy policy. So I um, I headed up the energy team in the Scottish government and eventually became the director for energy and climate change in, in Scotland. So yeah, that's definitely the way I've come into it. I wouldn't say I'm a, an environmentalist mm. uh, by background. I mean, that's certainly my outlook now, but I came at it from a different 
you know, a different different place, which I think gives you, you know, it's quite an interesting outlook on these issues. For me, these are these are standard policy and economic issues. Um, they just happen to have this really important ecological impact. Yeah, you know, if you if you um, uh, if you if you're successful. So you you um, you grew up in in Glasgow, moved from Glasgow to a job in Whitehall, then to to work in the Scottish government. I understand you were quite keen to come back to Glasgow, though. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Well, I came, I came. I worked in London for for almost almost a decade, and then came back mm-hmm. to Scotland to get married and have a family. And I lived in Edinburgh for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a Glaswegian, Edinburgh is effectively a you know it's a it's a foreign land. So it's <laughs> time being an expat. <laughs> Um, but uh, can you call? Can you really call yourself an expat in, in Edinburgh? I, I would definitely, I think if you're a Glaswegian, why would you ever venture east? So I, I had a lovely time sort of exploring a new city. But then, as ever with as you know, common with many Glaswegians, I thought oh, it's a bit small this place, isn't it? I wanted time to get back home to the motherland. So I so I moved through to Glasgow actually to take that energy job that I talked about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I speak to you today from my. Um, lovely flat in the in in glasgow and i'm so pleased to be here i think glasgow is just such a wonderful city and i'm so pleased that it will be hosting the world's leaders next year because i think it's going to be such a good opportunity for this city to show its wares well i'll I'll come to that in a second actually i was hoping to ask you about the the climate talks Mm. um what did you miss about glasgow why did you want to come back so much Oh, I don't mean that in an insulting way, obviously. I mean, no, obviously, I, I like Glasgow. I'm from Fife, for the record, so I don't have a, uh, <laughs> no, I don't have a stake in this. Well, I think Glasgow is a city that, that everyone should love, and most people do when they come here. Now, of course, mm-hmm. it starts with the people who live here. Now, I genuinely love Glaswegians, and I found myself when I lived in London missing them every day. That kind of <laughs> dry, uh, wicked sense of humour that you get in Glasgow—you don't find that commonly in other places. I'm a music fan. Mm. So what I mean one of the big attractions for me in moving to London was was the the music scene there. But the music scene in London good as it is is nothing like Glasgow so you get this sort of metaphorical um uh impact in London where you know people pay good money to go to a gig and they'll stand with their arms folded. Uh mm. it's almost kind of impress me attitude yeah. and it's completely the opposite in Glasgow where you get people you know pay their hard earned cash and no matter how bad it is they're going to have a good time. <laughs> you should make that a tourist slogan. You know, a much better outlook on life. I think There's, that people are are far uh, more willing. I think to do to, to enjoy themselves in Glasgow. So I, it, it's partly that. I just I love the city as well. Mm. Love the size of it. I think it's a it's a, it's it's perfectly placed to grow and be successful as it once was. I, I quite often compare it with Manchester, and mm. I think it should be. Uh, it should be as successful as Manchester. Manchester has done so well in the last decade to to kind of reinvent itself and start to grow, and it's thriving now. I would love to see Glasgow take the same path, and I think some of the things I work on are at the heart of that overall yeah, that yeah. plan. Is is Glasgow ready for um for the the changes that we're going to see with climate change? You know, and I suppose that is part of adapting, isn't it? Yeah, Glasgow is it, it's not ready. No, far from it. So it's not ready for the kind of twin challenges that climate change presents. So the, the the first of the challenges is the physical impacts of climate change itself. So you know this is a a city that will experience higher temperatures. Will probably by mid century have droughts if we don't attack if we don't tackle that properly. I know that that's something that Scottish Water are very. Uh, very aware of too, but in, remarkably, in a, in a place as wet as wet as the west of Scotland, that's still likely to be an issue if we don't mm. we don't plan ahead. 
So there's kind of physical impacts of that. There's also, you know, the impacts of sea level rise, which are probably less of an issue for a city like this. But then the other impacts, which I think are the areas where Glasgow is, are less prepared and, uh, uh, you know, and, and really needs to focus. And that's about how we reduce emissions. Mm. So we've got a particularly difficult challenge in Glasgow, which is the, the type of housing stock, um, the tenements. So I'm in, a, I'm in a, uh, you know, an Edwardian flat at the moment, and mm. um, I absolutely love it, but it's hopeless for energy efficiency. I've done what I can with it, but it's not easy to you know, make that a more energy efficient home. And, you know, tenemented buildings are still something you see a lot of in Glasgow. There's a lot of them. They're not easy to make ready for the, you know, the kind of zero carbon world that we're entering. So the particular challenge of energy efficiency in the built environment and how you make the heating for those buildings zero carbon is mm -hmm. one that Glasgow's going to have to work really hard on. And there are lots of ways to, to, to tackle it, but we're not going to really, we're not going to practically get around this problem until we start focusing and investing in it in Glasgow. So that's the one I really want to make the point in Glasgow. If it's going to be a zero carbon successful city in the future, it's going to have to start planning ahead because its housing stock is not like other cities. Hmm. I guess in the, the background to all this, you've got the the likelihood that there's going to be huge spending and a kind of, they're calling it a green economic recovery, you know, post-COVID or maybe in the midst of COVID. There, you know, there's a general expectation there's going to be huge money getting poured into the economy. I mean, what, what does a green recovery mean to you then? Yeah, I mean, it, it's taken on a new meaning. Um, we weren't talking about these issues in the same way pre-COVID, but no, COVID no. itself has kind of, changed the game i mean that's a fairly obvious thing to say but has it, has it bumped climate down the agenda i think it probably has bumped it down the agenda but but and i don't think that's unreasonable i mean i think no. that both of these issues are major threats um major risks but you know that there are some similarities between covid and climate as a threat but but largely they're they're quite different in their nature i mean covid is a very immediate um uh, threat to human health requiring mm -hmm. a very immediate plan which we are still living through today a climate change is more of a sort of chronic threat which will remain there in perpetuity until such time as we get to net zero globally and we stop warming the planet so I mean, it, it's not down the priority list but it's not gone away far, far from it i mean i think you know one of the interesting things for me is bringing together those two issues mm -hmm. for me Coming out of COVID, um, you know, we've moved from it being a health crisis to becoming an economic crisis. I think you know that's going to be the story, not just in the next few months, but the next decade. So, how we recover from COVID is a major challenge for all governments around the world, including the Scottish government. It is, it is, it is good in one sense only that we can we can explore, I think, bigger changes more rapidly coming out of this than perhaps we thought were possible pre-COVID. And if you're thinking about tying your, um, you know, strategy to something predictable in a moment of massive uncertainty like this, then then tackling climate change is clearly the thing to do. So we, you know, we've been planning for years and years in Scotland for the steps that we would need to get to that net zero goal that's now now law, the law of the land. Mm. We know what those steps are. We know that it involves a lot of investment. We're going to tackle it. I talked earlier about the investment that's necessary in Glasgow's housing stock, for example. While coming out of this economic crisis, let's invest our way out of it by focusing on those policies that get us to net zero. And actually, we can make a bigger impact on emissions than perhaps we could have done 
pre-COVID, and perhaps we can rescue some more, you know, optimism from a moment of, uh, you know, real challenge and despair. I, I'm excited about that. I think that's the kind of message that the politicians should be should be um, should be spreading as well. So it's it's not just pie in the sky. We really can we really can invest our way out of this. I mean, do you think has COVID normalised the idea of a kind of large-scale intervention in the economy? Because, you know, we saw the furlough scheme, for example, that's something, that sort of intervention from a conservative government in particular would have been quite unlikely a long time ago. That level of spending, it wasn't that long ago we had David Cameron and austerity. Do you think is it is it sort of changed the frame of, of how a government should act? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more cautious about that because I think, I, I believe it has, but, you know, I'm, I'm almost someone who likes to speak with the evidence in front of them. Mm. There is some evidence. I mean, I took part uh, and and led parts of the UK's climate assembly, uh, which was an amazing experience uh, commissioned by the Westminster Parliament to find out what 108 real citizens in the UK wanted to do and would support to get to the UK's target of net zero by 2050. And in the middle of that process, over six weekends, COVID arrived and the pandemic really took hold. And, uh, you know, one of the things we had to do was move the whole process on to Zoom uh, kind of very successfully, actually. But it allowed us to ask the question of that group, what they thought. So this is a group of people who are genuinely representative of the UK, including a whole range of metrics, including not the usual suspects like age, ethnicity, you know, where they live, but also by their views on climate. So you had a set of people in that group of 108 who weren't but in by any stretch um activists on climate change felt very skeptical about acting on it at all yeah. and they they even they supported the idea that coming out of this we should be we should be tying the steps to grow the economy after covid to to the net zero goal so yeah. i think it's a really interesting moment actually for 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 the politicians especially because they're going to have to steer this um this process the uh, process of economic renewal after covid and just to just go back to the Glasgow talks for a second, I mean, that's what's so interesting now about what's called the COP next year, the Glasgow Climate Summit. This is going to be the next major climate summit. We're going to have almost every world leader will come to it. That was the, that was what happened in Paris five years ago. So we're going to have, you know, amazingly enough, these world leaders in Glasgow next year. Yeah. And um, that's going to come at the end of a period of about 18 months when every one of those world leaders will be trying to stimulate their own economies to grow. And I suppose this moment, this idea of, kind of tying that renewal to to the climate objectives, it kind of presents itself as this opportunity that really wasn't there even just a few months ago. And I think that's tremendously hopeful. Um, mm. I really hope that's what what happens. Well, I guess we should we should turn to the the climate talks. I mean, what what does the delay mean? Obviously, that it was pushed back um, by a year because of the pandemic. I guess to me, there's kind of a tension there. On the one hand, time is running out. Um, it was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned we had about 12 years to kind of take the most drastic action that we, we need to take to avert catastrophic warming. That was two years ago. On the other hand, I suppose there are some advantages you've, you've mentioned in the past um, that we'll have a bit more on. We'll have more certainty on the state of the US at the time. I mean, what, mm. what does the delay mean? Well, the delay is a great thing. So it's, it's, it's really good that we have it because... Um, there's kind of several reasons. The first is that planning a COP, and even in normal times, is an enormous endeavour. It's the biggest of the UN. The UN has several kind of global 
um, uh, global objectives that it that it meets every year to discuss, and the climate one has grown to become a real kind of jamboree. So it's um, it's, it's the people, <laughs> people it's, yeah, people have described it as a mini Olympics, and I, I actually think there is there is some merit in that description, just because given the size of it. So just planning an event like that and having to do that quickly, the process selected Glasgow quite late on this year for reasons that. Um, uh, are just a kind of technical factor, really, but it was difficult to agree it. Um, so we didn't have long to plan for it, and the fact that we have an a, you know an extra twelve months to plan for it is just generally a good idea. So there's a kind of practical concern of planning an event like that, which I think it will be a much bigger success because of the extra twelve months. Mm. The biggest reason to delay it actually is the U.S. presidential election. So either way, however it goes, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, it is better that we know prior to having the talks. Um, obviously, if it's Joe Biden, it's going to be a you know very different discussion for the US itself. So Joe yeah. Biden has said that he will bring uh, the US uh, back into the Paris Accord. They haven't actually left yet, but Trump has said that he will take the US out of Paris at the end of the year. He'll be the only uh, country in the world that has chosen to do that if, mm. um, if he follows through on it. Joe Biden, as I said, even if he does that, he'll bring them back in again. So that, you know, that will clearly change the talks. But even if it's Trump, at least we know where we stand. So it kind of removes that uncertainty. Yeah. And I think we've, we've bought ourselves a year. COVID buys, buys ourselves a year. Uh, so, you know, roughly, <clears throat> it's difficult to know what the fall in emissions will be this year globally. But it's probably of the order of 7 to 10%, which is enormous. You know, the kind of, we've not seen a fall in emissions like that ever. Uh, the interesting thing for me is that that's probably what you need to have. You need to see that kind of fall every year if you want to meet the Paris goals. So mm. you know, it's, it's a kind of it's it, we've, we've COVID has bought us a kind of year the likes of which we'll need to see more of in the future. And therefore, I think it's okay to delay the talks for twelve months. And the last yeah. reason it's important to delay it is COVID itself. So this idea that in the presidency of the COP. The UK's role is a bit more important than just hosting the talks. It's all the diplomacy that happens before that. And um, and that diplomacy now is coloured by the need to, to grow and to stimulate the economies in a green way. So I think that idea that the UK's presidency of the COP, they are also presidency, they also have the presidency of the G7 um, mm -hmm. next year. You know, that that those all those things need to be tied somehow to the climate goals and i think if that's the case then glasgow next year is going to be a huge success if we can pull all this off it's going to be a really memorable uh memorable cop um you know five years on from paris it's a, it's a huge moment for uh you know the the process that that is that is designed to try and tackle climate change mm. and i guess from your point of view it's just exciting to have them all come to glasgow you could do tours for them yeah, we Joe Biden and Socky Hall Street. So, you know, yeah. that's the kind of, um, that's the sort of uh, guided tour that we'll be offering. Yeah. Would, um, you, would you take Donald Trump to the Barrowlands? Is that something you it depends. It, it depends if he behaves himself. I'm not sure that he would enjoy that kind of, um, that kind of experience. It might make his hair go a bit frizzy. So that's it's, true, it's always yeah. the kind of, the always the issue of how damp it is in the, in the Barrowlands. I, I, I just worry Barrowlands. I mean, I think it's important to say that one of the things that defines this great city I live in is is kind of culture and it's particularly it's, it's focus on music. So I mean, I, I that's something I, I desperately hope survives this COVID crisis because it, it's it's a bit it's kind of it's the most important bit of this city when I think of it. The, the culture that we have here and so, so much of that is tied to the venues that we have and our ability to go out and uh, enjoy them. So I hope that's something we celebrate next year. That I really do feel that 
we should have a bit of a festival around this in Glasgow. Uh, you know, this is the kind of city that I think will will easily accommodate, uh, you know, a big uh, jamboree, as I put it. Mm. Uh, the sort of Olympics of a kind of geeky Olympics in a way. Geeky Olympics, yeah. So, let, I'm, I, and maybe this is the maybe this is the um, the, the the cop that where it stops being geeky. I mean, I mm. think one of the things we look at in my day to day is is the steps that we actually need to take to get to net zero. And and it's easy to fall into trap of thinking that these are all kind of technical changes like renewable power and um, you know electric vehicles. But actually, underneath it all is a set of lifestyle and social changes too. And it, and it's not going to work unless real people who are not steeped in the issues and shouldn't be steeped in the issues unless they feel that they understand what's coming and feel motivated to support it. Now, I think it'd be an interesting thing for this COP is to try and turn this from being this technical, somewhat removed process where real people aren't involved into being a much more um, uh, you know, realistic and focused discussion of what changes we can expect in our lives. None of this is frightening at all. I don't think it should be frightening. But uh, politicians so far have been a bit resistant to get into the details about how lives are going to change in the future. And I would like to see that happen because I think that's where you get the broad support. That was the experience of the Climate Assembly that I talked about earlier. And I guess as, as far as anyone can be, you really are steeped in these issues. You know, you're you're confronted with the sort of reality of, of climate change every day. You're, mm. you're really in the midst of it all. I mean, I don't know if this is maybe an unfair question, but I mean, do you find do you find that you worry about it personally? Is that something that if you you know if you're kind of confronted by the idea of what might happen to the world in the future and it doesn't always look very positive, is that something you ever worry about? Oh God, yeah, I mean, I definitely worry about it. I mean, I, I I think you'd be you'd be crazy not to worry about it. And I certainly do think about it every day. I've got two young kids, and I, I sometimes think about what the world would be like for them. So I mean, yeah. that's that's my main outlook on it. Um, I do feel deeply the responsibility to to try and drive a bit of progress, and I, I'm you know I'm in a absolutely amazing position to try and influence it i love this job i'm so pleased to have it but i do worry about it and um i think in scotland we have an administration that is keen to act on these things i think you know this is going to have to be a bit more than just a sort of strategy that only one or two ministers think about though you know this is Mm -hmm. this is this is all encompassing and that's true in scotland that's true across the UK as well. So I'd like to get on to the kind of broader discussion of this. It's almost a sort of, it's not a climate strategy we need. It's just, a, it's, a, it's a general strategy for the economy and for society that happens to tackle climate change. It's not that climate change is, you know, it's going to run through everything that we do in Scotland over the next three decades, whether we like it or not. So it's the kind of proverbial letters in a stick of rock in all the other things that we're doing. And I'd like to see us broaden the discussion into that. That's That's when we'll really see some big progress, I think. And I suppose that the climate talks might well offer an opportunity to do that, at least. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, the talks themselves are are um, are hugely important. So, of course, I want them to be a success, but they do play back into that domestic discussion. So, at UK and Scottish level, that for me, the 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 um, the, the, the the real relevance of the COP in Glasgow next year is that it it means that ministers in Holyrood, ministers in in Westminster, um, are going to have to put in place credible, ambitious domestic plans for cutting emissions and preparing for climate change itself this yeah. year. So over the next 12 months, we're going to have to see those plans. The Scottish ministers have an update to the climate change plan due before the end of the year. That's going to have to be a meaningful update because it's the thing that everyone will be looking at when uh, attention turns to Glasgow next year. Similarly for Boris, 
He, uh, he was elected uh, less than a year ago on a clear ticket to achieve net zero for the UK. And yet we don't have a plan yet to deliver that. So that's going to be another kind of test of his diplomacy and, and leadership is, is whether those kind of plans are in place to be credible in the role of the president of the COP next year. So this nice tie up from my perspective between the domestic needs for better plans, more ambitious plans, and the needs to be credible on that global stage next year means that I think there is a really good opportunity over the next year for Scotland and the UK to really up its game to deliver on these things that we in the Committee on Climate Change have been advising on for the last 12 years. For the first time, I think it's credible for us to, to start imagining we might have that kind of all-encompassing strategy with all the kind of key dates and policies mm. um, uh, designed in. And, um, and I'm determined to try and make the most of that and to be as helpful as possible to the, to the, to the policymakers over the next year to deliver that. Mm. Well, good luck with that, I suppose. I mean, thanks very much, Chris. That's, uh, that's, that's great. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so now it's time for the rant of the week. That's Mandy Rhodes' chance to get something off her chest. Some of these rants haven't been particularly passionate recently, but I understand, Mandy, there is something this week that you've got. Yeah, it's about pish. Are we going to talk pish? Yeah, I really, really hate that advert with the woman who's pulling on a pair of paper pants. There's nothing pretty about paper pants and saying a little bit of we is not going to stop me being me. So basically, this is about um, urinary incontinence and a woman in an advert basically accepting that having a child comes with the risk of pissing yourself really and then and, you buy and you have to buy these these special these paper pants yeah, yeah and they seriously are not pretty and i think the thing that really annoys me about this advert is it it, it is completely avoidable and um elaine miller who calls herself the fanny physio she's also she, i wasn't she, sure you were going to include that there i honestly didn't know she makes urinary incontinence funny um so she is a stand-up comedian as well called gusset grippers and mm-hmm. elaine gets very passionate about this subject because she said that it, the idea that a woman should in any way accept that um weeing yourself is perfectly natural mm. is it's just awful and it, it's the messaging that women get around lots of things to do with their health and actually she's launched this campaign which started uh, last week on the 24th of September which is called dry by Christmas which is is encouraging women to do their pelvic floor exercises um, and actually Liam I'm doing my pelvic floor exercises as we speak <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's there's no we from this end of the office. That's not something that you need to regularly report, I would say. No, but it's really important that women do not just think this is something that that should happen because they've they've had a baby or whatever. Well, and that, sorry, I was going to say it kind of feeds into a, a bigger story, then, isn't it? The way that women yeah. are often marginalised in health research. Yeah, which we've talked about quite a lot when we've talked about my menopause, etc. Mm-hmm. on this. But I think um, this is a really good thing from Elaine, this idea of three months to get your pelvic floor um, properly strengthened so that you, you're not having to think about weeing if you sneeze or whatever. Mm-hmm. And And for too long, women have probably just been too embarrassed to even raise these issues but then Mm. when you've got an advert on on you know television all the time trying to um just make you believe that it's fine 
Well, I it's just... tapping into insecurities, isn't it? Yeah. And also it's t- tapping into the idea that women won't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So if you then say, oh, these paper pants are really pretty and I'm fine and I'm all going outside, I'm just going to wet my pants. It's not a good thing. And it's actually something that can be dealt with quite quite easily if women do talk about it. And uh, if you have a look at that hashtag, dry by Christmas and learn how to do your pelvic floor exercises. And I tell you, that is something politicians uh, could do something about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.